the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. If you're interested in volcanoes, you need not go further than our national parks to get your fill. Did you know that 84 units of the national park system have volcanic resources? These parks run the gamut of having very active volcanic features to those where volcanoes form the landscape and contribute to the geodiversity of the park. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. The most active volcano in our park system is Kilauea in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park on the Big Island of Hawaii. It's also one of the most monitored and researched volcanoes anywhere in the world. This week, the traveler's Lynn Riddick talks to Professor Leif Karlstrom, whose recent research of Kilauea might be music to your ears. Lynn and Professor Karlstrom will be back in a minute. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Since 1986, National Park visitors have turned to the best-selling guidebook, Passport to Your National Parks, to collect fun ink stamps from each of their explorations. Just take your passport book to any National Park Visitor Center or Park Store and get your free ink stamp with the date and location of your visit. Personalize your passport even more by adding stickers, logging your favorite hiking trails, and mapping your next adventure. You can also show off your love for our national parks with passport-themed apparel and accessories. Best of all, 100% of proceeds from the Passport program support your national parks. Stamp your passport as you capture stories, preserve memories, and discover America's natural and historical treasures. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. With me today is Leif Karlstrom, who is Associate Professor of Earth Sciences at the University of Oregon in Eugene. And we're gonna talk about some recent research he's been doing regarding a different kind of technique, musical dynamics, if you will, to understand what's happening below the surface of the Kilauea Volcano in Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. Hi Leif, welcome to The Traveler. Thanks for having me, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start with your position there at the University of Oregon and the type of work that is done by researchers there. Yeah, so I uh, I work in an earth sciences department. So we study all sorts of things having to do uh, with our earth and other planets in the solar system. But I mostly focus on volcanoes. I maintain a research group consisting of, of graduate students and undergraduate students and sometimes postdocs, about six or seven people. Broadly speaking, in our department, we have actually quite a strong volcanology program. We actually have a, a dedicated cluster associated with volcano research and all told probably about 30 or 40 people here at the University of Oregon studying volcanoes. And what kind of research do you personally focus on? 
Yeah. So I, I work on all things related to how fluid moves around in the in Earth's crust. Um, and so sometimes that actually extends beyond volcanology. I study landscape evolution and glaciology. Um, but for the volcano part of my research, you know, it's everything from active eruptions, like we'll probably talk about today, um, to ancient exhumed systems that are now exposed at the surface. And we can sort of look at the rocks and examine the plumbing system that way. So more geological, I guess. So everything from uh, what people call geophysics, so looking at active signals that we record at volcanoes, to, to going out in the field and, and looking at rocks. Now, you and your colleague, Josh Crozier, published some research last month on a new generation of volcano monitoring with the Kilauea volcano. And I want to have you share some details about your research, but uh, first, tell us a little bit about Kilauea and why it's such a worthy volcano for studying. Yeah, so Kilauea is is quite special, and it's not just because it's a national park. <laughs> um, it's actually the most uh, active volcano on Earth and has been for, for quite some time, as far as we can tell. For that reason, it's also sort of one of the most widely studied globally. Many people have looked at this volcano, have have monitored it in different ways. And um, and so we know quite a lot about it. It's sort of a template, if you like, for for volcanology generally. So if you're gonna if you're gonna study volcanoes, you have to study Kilauea in, in some sense. And um, there's a there's a wonderful volcano observatory operated by the U.S. Geological Survey um, situated right there, and they maintain a network of sensors that's also one of the best of any volcano globally. So for the type of work that we were doing in this study, it was an obvious choice. Have you been out there many times? I wouldn't say many, I can count them on one hand, but yeah, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about this specific research you did with listening to the seismic data from Kilauea. Sure. Uh, so we really relied on um, the fact that there is this wonderful existing network of instruments um, operated by the U.S. Geological Survey, and they make their data openly accessible to anyone. You could download their seismic data, if you like, from the internet. And um, so, so really, you know, what, what we did here is, is mostly leverage existing data, but then sort of try to interpret that data in a new way. So we developed mathematical and computational models for the physical processes that we think are going on underneath of the volcano. And this, the particular sort of period that we were interested in studying was, was actually a quite long, um, effusive eruption that probably many people who have visited Kilauea in the last, I guess, 14 years now, will know something about. Um, in 2008, there was a, a opening at the summit of a small crater, the Hale Mau Mau crater. And, and as soon as it opened, there was a lava lake um, that, that was- Molten visible. lava lake? Yeah, molten lava lake. Yeah, that's right. Um, so a pretty spectacular thing. A um, couple hundred meters, so several football fields wide. And- filled with hot liquid magma, <laughs> um, not actively erupting. So, so it was actually, you know, as long as you didn't get too close, fairly safe to observe. And many people did. Um, you could go to the Hawaiian Volcanoes National Park and go check out the lava lake. It was quite popular at night, you know, very spectacular glow and so forth. But it gave us sort of an opportunity to observe a volcano in sort of a I don't know, I'm not going to say a sleeping state because it was actively erupting, but sort of a quiescent state for a very long period of time. So we actually studied 
the time period from 2008 when the crater opened all the way to 2018, which of course was the, the last major eruptive episode at Kilauea in which the summit crater collapsed and that lava lake drained away. Um, so a 10-year period of time, which is actually quite long um, in, in studies of volcanoes. We don't have many other examples of, of long-lived eruptions that were quite as well monitored as this one. So because of this, the long time series, 10 years, um, we have the opportunity to sort of learn about the physical processes responsible for the signals that we see at Kilauea. So where did you get this idea for this specific research? Um, and, and how did you go about getting all the data? Yeah, so this this has been a project that's been in development for, for quite some time. In fact, it was a, a project that I started during my postdoctoral work. I was working um, with Eric Dunham at Stanford University. And at that point, we were not so much interested in Kilauea, but more interested in and much more sort of basic physics of how magma moved around in, in conduits on very short timescales. And specifically, we were looking at sort of waves, um, sound waves, actually, and other types of, of waves um, that might be excited by sort of impulsive processes within the volcano. And so we, we developed a sort of a mathematical computational model um, of this process and then, you know, went looking for a place to test it, essentially. And and Kilauea came up as sort of the most obvious candidate. And so, so it was sort of at that point, um, which would have been, I don't know, six years ago or something that we started looking at Kilauea specifically. And then Josh Crozier, who you mentioned, who's the lead author on, on the paper that recently came out. Um, he, he was actually a PhD student in my group. Um, no longer, he now works at the US Geological Survey actually. But at the time that he, that was his PhD project actually is to sort of um, apply this model that we had developed to the Kilauea data. Um, and so that took several years. He assimilated seismic data, he assimilated um, ground deformation data, and specifically what we were interested in, and, and the thing that sort of caught our attention from the perspective of the model, um, were these seismic events. Um, they're called uh, very long period seismic events, not a very exciting name, but um, it refers to the frequency content, the dominant frequency content of the signal um, happens to be sort of a, a dominant period of oscillation um, in the sort of five to 40 second range, um, which is which is fairly long compared to many signals that we see at active volcanoes. Um, and so these, these very long period or people often abbreviate it as uh, VLP, uh, events um, happened intermittently throughout the 2008 to 2018 time period. And we actually know how they were generated because chunks of the crater wall would episodically fall off into the lava lake, a fairly spectacular event actually, um, that oftentimes generated small explosions that actually would be quite dangerous if you had been there. Um, but what you see on the seismic network uh, after one of these rockfall events um, is this beautiful oscillation this, this very long period event. Um, so, so we know it was triggered by the rockfall hitting the lake. And then our guess was that that sort of forcing of the lake caused waves to bounce around within the plumbing system of the volcano, the conduit, and then the, the reservoir, um, some two kilometers below the surface. And that oscillation in the fluid 
coupled to the surrounding rocks, which then was picked up by the seismometers. Um, so it's sort of a, a bit of a train of events to the, the event that we see, but that's a relatively simple type of signal and, and actually was something that we could model. Um, so we call it a resonance event. And we hit the surface much like hitting a drum. And so this is where the connection to music comes in, I suppose, is that the, the rock hits the lake. Um, that's sort of like a mallet hitting a drum. And then the subsequent oscillation is the ringing of the, of the bell, if you like, um, or the drum. So technically these resonant events, did they manifest as sound waves? No, they did not. Yeah. So this is, these, these will be much too low frequency to hear. Um, the human audible band is between uh, 20 hertz, roughly, and 20 kilohertz. Um, and so a hertz is one per second, right? So 20 hertz would be 20 cycles per second. And these are more like a 40 second period, <laughs> right? So much, much, much lower frequency. You would not be able to hear these. And, and furthermore, they're not actually sound waves. Um, they're displacements of the ground surface. And so, you know, you can see them in instrumental records, but you would not be able to hear them. Um, we have to do some additional processing to hear them. And the hearing actually is, you know, not so much connected to the actual modeling that we do. It's more like something that we um, did after the fact to try to understand and sort of listen in a different way, perhaps, to the, the data um, that we had analyzed. So can we hear some of the samples? Absolutely. We, you know, we sort of have a couple of different ways in which, which we turn this data into sound. As I mentioned, it's not it's not sound waves, right? It's it's just displacements of the ground. And so you you can turn it into an audible signal by speeding it up. And so so that's that's the simplest way. Um, it's this procedure called sonification of data that's um I'd say a you know underutilized technique broadly in science um, for representing and, and examining data. But for oscillatory data like these seismic signals, you can simply just speed it up until it's in the auditory band. Um, so that's what we did first. So I'll play you an, an example. This is three years worth of, um, of these VLP signals um, sped up about 8,000 times and then placed at the relative uh, event occurrence. So you're going to hear uh, many, many impulsive sounds that I think it sort of sounds like a, like an old sort of field recording of a marimba or something. So it, it, has, a, it has a sort of natural musical quality because of the, the simple resonant nature of the events. Um, but you'll hear them occurring sort of at the relative times that they actually did occur. It's just much, much faster. Um, so here, let me, let me play. So you're hearing sequences events. Each one of those individual sounds corresponds to a rockfall onto the lake surface. And then the tone that you're hearing comes from the fact that the very long period seismic events actually have a very dominant frequency. Um, and so it sounds quite musical. It actually sounds like you're hitting a drum. And that's that's natural. I haven't done any sort of processing to the, the data. Um, and it's quite unusual, actually, in some sense, for seismic signals to sound quite so, so musical. Uh, oftentimes, they're broadband and very noisy. So those sounds are rocks falling into the lava lake? That's right. Yep, each one of those little impulsive events is sort of a bus-sized rock falling onto a lava lake. So quite a spectacular event. Um, so these, this happened thousands of times over the 2008 to 2018 period. And so they basically gave us a, a continuous record of the changing properties 
can think of, you know, the sound that you hear as reflecting, you know, again, the sort of analogy to, to music, right? If you hit a drum, what does it sound like? Well, the shape of the drum dictates the frequency and then the fluid inside, usually that's air, um, is what's resonating in the, in the drum. And, uh, you know, that's more or less exactly analogous to, to what we're doing here. So the, the tone that you, that you perceive when you listen to this is reflecting both the shape of the plumbing system, the conduit and the, and the magma reservoir beneath it, as well as the properties of the magma. And it turns out magma is quite a complicated fluid at, at volcanoes. There's, it's a, sort of a multi-phase suspension of bubbles and crystals in a silicate polymer melt which is the molten rock. Um, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's acoustic properties, if you like, um, are, are quite complex. And so, so that's, that's one of the main things that we were interested in, um, is trying to see whether we could look for differences, like the differences in tone that you're hearing, the geometry of the plumbing system stays relatively constant on these time scales. And so any change in tone that you hear comes from changing fluid properties, and that's primarily temperature and bubble content. Can you play us another clip? I can. So another thing that we can do with this is um, sort of take one step back from the very direct sonification where we're just speeding up the sound. And I'm going to use a technique that we're calling uh, additive resynthesis, where we're taking the waveform and mapping it onto frequency while preserving the shape of the waveform so the envelope of the waveform um, and so this this is a technique that's that's sort of useful for looking at signals that do not have very many cycles in them um, so you could sort of hear each one of those those drum beats um, in the sound that i played previously it went by really fast right there's um, so for each individual event you're not hearing very much detail and Sometimes that detail is of interest, actually. It's, it's telling you about you know, the type of oscillation that is set up by the, um, the rockfall event. And so this additive resynthesis technique is, is sort of a way to get around the fact that you don't have very many oscillation cycles. And so speeding it up sort of compresses things. I will share my sound again. Here now we're listening to a much more tonal, much less drum-like sound. But again, all the impulsive sounds that you're listening to are sequences of these VLP events. This now sounds quite more musical in some sense. Um, it's much more tonal, the tones are changing, and those, those changing tones are actually telling us you know, something quite important about how the system is evolving. This now is actually a much longer time period. This is the entire 2008 to 2018 period. So this clip that you're playing, and we probably won't hear the whole clip, but it takes place uh, over the 10-year period using the seismic data compressed. Is that correct? Yeah. So this this has a, a couple more layers of, of, I guess, processing on it. So we're not actually using directly the seismic data. We're using the envelope of the seismic data and then the periods um, and, and generating new sounds that have uh, the correct envelope. Um, but are at frequencies that we can hear and we can control the duration of the event and we can control the frequencies that you hear and so you're li listening you know accurately to the relative frequencies now um, as well as the rel relative time of all those events but sort of mapped to a some somewhat one step farther removed from the actual data itself 
Interesting. So how will this sort of new approach, you know, with seismic resonance signals kind of fit into the overall understanding of what's happening beneath the surface and the likelihood of future eruptions? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's sort of the uh, the million dollar question in some sense, right? We would like to to be able to forecast volcanic eruptions. They tend to be quite hazardous <laughs> nearby, um, as as we saw in 2018, right? Um, certainly, lots of lots of property damage, and and sometimes you know loss of life as well, right? Um, there are examples in the historical record of, of really quite catastrophic eruptions, and so this is one of one of the background goals of of my research is to you know learn about how volcanoes work in the hopes that we can forecast. And so what we're doing here, you know, I wouldn't say is is going to lead directly to, you know, a new set of forecasts that will predict the next eruption of Kilauea. I don't, I don't think that's quite, uh, we're, we're quite there, but I think what we're doing is we're establishing a new set of tools that allow us to peek into the subsurface of the volcano um, in more or less real time and, and sort of discern what's going on. And in combination with other types of data, I, I do think that there's probably you know, enhanced predictability um, from this technique because we're directly inferring the changing properties of the magmatic system that in some cases can lead to eruptions. So for example, bubbles um, are one of the primary drivers of volcanic eruptions and the explosivity of volcanic eruptions. And that's one of the things that we're backing out from, from these signals is, is changing bubble contents in the subsurface. So, you know, combined with other other types of data and probably with several more steps of validation, right, where we sort of check to make sure that our models are correct and we believe the output. Um, yeah, I believe that there's there's sort of new tools on the horizon for forecasting eruptions. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, like you said, the Kilauea volcano in 2018 was major. Uh, you know, something like 700 homes were destroyed and roads were torn apart and some roads even fell into the crater and the lava covered like 13 square miles of land. Does anybody have any clue, any of the research that's happening now, have any idea of when something major like this might happen again? Uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say we know when it will happen next, but we know that it will happen um, again because Kilauea has a long history of activity. And in fact, you know, there is active lava at the summit now. So it's, it's, you know, it's has not gone to sleep. It's just sort of taking a taking a breath, if you like. This is Lynn Riddick with Leif Karlstrom. What would an active volcano sound like if each separate lava slosh, fountain of fire, and burst of steam were put to music? Well, Leif and his colleagues have done just that through their volcano listening project, and we'll tell you about that after this short break. Interior Federal Credit Union's rates have jumped again. Check out their new certificate rates at interiorfcu.org. Maximize your money for the future with terms from 6 to 60 months and a minimum opening deposit of just $500. Bump-up certificates are also available to increase your rate one time during the certificate's term. Ready to start saving? Apply at interiorfcu.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. 
Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. I'm Lynn Riddick, and I'm back with Leif Karlstrom from the Oregon Center for Volcanology. Now in your spare time, you've got a separate project going on, one that puts volcanic eruptions to music and visual images. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So the Volcano Listening Project is um, sort of a, a collaborative effort, actually, between myself and a, a few other scientists, um, Ben Holtzman, Columbia University, I think is, is my primary collaborator, um, Anna Barth, who's at UC Berkeley now, Josh Crozier, we talked about, um, and a few others, um, as well as some musicians. And, and um, I, I have a background in music. I, I was sort of, I guess, fortunate enough to grow up in a, in a family for which science and music were both pretty uh, important, I guess, influences on my life. And, um, and so I've, yeah, I've, I've played violin for most of my life and, and I've had a professional music career myself. And so somewhat recently had the, um, I guess, inspiration to try and bridge the science and music parts of my life and, um, and found a way to do so in this, this volcano listening project. So, so it's, it's both sort of an outreach effort um, in some sense, we're trying to make the scientific stories, I suppose, and the data involved in those stories um, accessible in, in different ways to non-scientists um, through sound and through animations. Um, and it's also a, a means of, of developing these sonification algorithms. So the, the things that we listened to in the previous discussion, um, those, are, those are sort of new methods that we're developing and it's actual re real research. So it's it's a bit of a blurry line, actually. It, it becomes part of my, my research agenda and then also becomes, you know, something that's a musical outlet. And we take, take the data, we take the sonified data um, from different volcanic events and, and we interpret it, you know, aesthetically. And that's now sort of, far quite quite far removed from from the science itself right we're not we're not literally interpreting you know all the ones and zeros if you like of the data but it's more like a, an, an impression or subjective um interpretation of that data well let's hear a sample of how you put music to kilauea activity and um then i want you to describe what we're hearing too sure happy to do that um so I'll I'll play a, a bit of a clip. Maybe I'll hop right in in the middle or something like that because um, it's a bit it's a bit long. But we took a number of data streams. So so in the previous discussion we were just talking about seismic data, but um, 
course, there's lots of other data collected at, at Kilauea. And so we took ground deformation, um, two different types of ground deformation, and actually SO2, sulfur dioxide gas emissions, over a, a, a previous period of activity. Actually, I think it's 2000 uh, to 2010. So actually the period leading up to what um, we talked about previously. Sonified that data. You, know, you can think about it as different voices. Um, and you'll hear those different voices in the data. And then a group of musicians, I guess myself included, but also another violin player, um, a guitar player, and a bass player got into a recording studio, put on headphones, piped the you know sonified volcano data into the headphones, and then uh, improvised. So. So it's a bit mixed together, and that's actually the intent here, is that the sonified data becomes just another voice in the composition. So if you listen carefully, you'll hear some sounds that are not organic, generated by a computer. Then you'll hear the acoustic instruments. You mentioned that you played the violin and you play the violin on this clip. So did you try to be consistent when you saw a digital representation of say a lava fountain? Did you try to be consistent with how you played the violin at that particular point? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, you know, for those who know say classical music, right? Like there's a famous piece called the four seasons by Vivaldi. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, um, I believe he was probably inspired by the fact that it was spring or summer or fall, right? But there's not a whole lot of data <laughs> in that. Um, and so I think you could sort of view this similarly, right? Um, we react to the data, but we're not really trying to mimic it. Um, we're trying to create a piece of music around it, if you like. And so, yeah, you might, if you sort of listen for those features. If you know what to listen for, um, maybe you'll hear something, but that's not really the point of this. It's, it's much more, I would say, the aesthetics um, of, of the volcanic uh, activity as a whole, rather than the specifics. You know? So on your website, you share this music along with uh, 3D animation of the Kilauea volcano. So where did the animation come from? Yeah, so animation was made by, um, a computer graphics um, colleague, uh, Zach Marlowe McCarthy. And he uh, he actually did a wonderful job with that. He took real data, so a digital elevation model of Kilauea Volcano, and then represented it in a creative way, first of all, sort of a pointillistic um, representation, but then also created an animation that was driven by the variations in the data itself. Right? And so you'll see it sort of sh uh, shaking in a way that, of course, is not physical, but is is reflecting some of the data um, and the sounds that are coming out of this. Um, and we had different sort of animation elements associated with each of the, the different data streams. So we had very impulsive ground deformations, and those were splashes of color um, right at the summit. The SO2 gas emissions come in as sort of a distribution of red vertical lines. And, you know, there's it, it, it feels somewhat volcanic, but it's also quite abstracted. And, you know, this is one spectrum of the volcanic, uh, one part of the spectrum of the volcanic 
listening project where we're mostly focused on on the sort of artistic side of this, the abstractions. But that animation actually has quite a bit of utility in the more directly scientific applications because of course, this is how we visualize the actual physical processes underlying the data. And so, so we use those same techniques, essentially mapping different parts of the data onto visual elements um, when we're making outreach products as well. How about a sample of the Mount Redoubt volcano in Lake Clark National Park and Preserve in Alaska? So Mount Redoubt is a, is a different type of volcano than, than Kilauea. It's a stratovolcano. Um, in an arc, so different tectonic setting, um, had a, a sort of rather famous sequence of eruptions in 2009 that involved explosions at the summit, and they were quite well recorded and exhibited some sort of odd things, I guess, um, uh, including seismic signals that had a strongly gliding frequency content. And, and so that caught my attention as, as a neat sort of thing to sonify. Here, we're gonna go back to the, the direct sonification technique where I'm just literally taking the, the trace of the seismometer, the ground shaking, and then speeding it up. And so what the sound that you'll hear is basically the lead up to an explosion, one of these eruptions. And it's quite remarkable actually, because the, the lead up involves this, this sweep of frequencies. Um, and so, so these things were called screams. And I think uh, the sonification, I think does that justice. So I'll just play it. Um, and this is, you'll hear, hear the, the sort of frequency sweep and then a big broadband noise event, and that's the eruption itself. Okay. Wow, that's <laughs> so, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so that one that one sounds almost uh, I don't know. Clearly, clearly, you know when the eruption happened. <laughs> In that case, it's not always the case. But did you add musical instruments to that? Nope, nope, did not. So that one is is just purely the data sonification. And so the volcano listening project, I think, has a you know artistic interpretive side, and then it has a very sort of scientific side where we're interested in representing accurately the types of um, variations that that occurred in the data through sound. Um, so this is an example of that. How about the sonification of the Lone Star geyser eruptions at Yellowstone National Park? Let's hear those. Sure. So this would be a case where um, we're taking different data streams of uh, here, I guess maybe you could think of it as an analog volcanic system, right? Geysers. Um, erupt water, not magma. Um, but in some cases, like these famous geysers in, in Yellowstone do so very regularly. And Lone Star geyser erupts more or less on the clock every three hours and has so for, since uh, you know the start of the instrumental record there, which is, I believe, around 1920. Um, so a very, very uh, consistent eruptive pattern. And so it's a nice template actually for, for studying active volcanoes because of course it's not quite as dangerous and you know when it's going to erupt. And so, so there's been quite a lot of effort and I've been involved in some of that of instrumenting these geysers um, so that we can learn about real volcanoes. And so, so here's, I guess I'll play an example of, um, of, of a tilt meter data that we sonified. And here's a, a different type of sonification where we take the, the tilt. So it's just the angular displacement of the ground as the, the geyser swells up the reservoir inside. 
through some eruption cycles and we map it onto frequencies. So this is going to sound maybe more musical. It's just going to sound like a, 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 a sweeping pitch, um, but you can view it as the motion of the ground. So when the pitch goes up, that's the ground swelling up. When the pitch goes down, and oftentimes it does so quite rapidly, that'll be an eruption. So it goes in cycles. You can hear the pitch going up and down and up and down. Okay. So that's those are the cycles of the guy. So those uh, rises in pitch are what's recorded every three hours with the geyser. Yeah, so it's it's the the main eruptive event is is like clockwork every three hours, but there's quite a lot of variation around it. Um, there's a lead up period where where water is is sort of starting to come out of the cone, and um, that's quite much more complicated actually. Um, and so so you're hearing some of that as well. Very good. Well, what's next on your plate, either through the university or your music project? Yeah, so I think we're just getting started with this volcano listening project. Um, we just we just are developing kind of the toolbox, and we'd love to see people start using it. We're starting to run workshops actually on data sonification, um, sort of teaching teaching interested students the um, the tools, I guess, the Python programming tools to create sounds from data. And so we hope a lot of people pick this up as as an either you know both from the aesthetic side, making music from volcanoes or or whatever signals you like. Um, as well as, as you know, including this in, in scientific papers and discussions. So um, I'm quite excited about that. Of course, my project at Kilauea continues. You know, there's more we can learn. So science is, is a long, long-running endeavor. The timescale is, is years, if not decades, for, for results. So, uh, so stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will. Um, I want to thank you for sharing your work with us today, Leif, and uh, we'll be eager to learn more about the research you're doing and to listen to your volcano soundtracks. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was nice. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. You can check out the complete Kilauea track and more musical volcanic sounds from Leaf's band Small Town Therapy at volcanolisteningproject.org. Next week, we'll be sitting down with Yellowstone National Park Superintendent Cam Sholley to discuss how the park is recovering from devastating flooding that struck in June. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. 
by funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.